Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This Anchored short series is brought to you by Flygal Ventures. We've just updated our cart with new stocks of RIA, men's tees and Patagonia shirts, women's apparel, tube fly materials, and even some recycled fly line bracelets that I've whipped up while traveling. Check it all out at www.flygal.ca. Thank you so much for your business. Jim Rissling is the field program coordinator for the Fraser River Sturgeon Conservation Society. A retired conservation officer, Jim now devotes a great deal of time training volunteers how to handle and take sturgeon, which is how I met Jim years ago when I myself was a sturgeon guide. I met with Jim at his home in Chilliwack, British Columbia, for a quick coffee and chat about the Fraser River dinosaurs. I was born in Dawson Creek, a uh, northern part of British Columbia, and when I turned 18, I was a real country boy, and I'd never even seen a city, and a mobile rec- recruiter unit for the Navy came to town, and two days later, I was on a train to Halifax, and I was in the Navy for three years, and then when I got out of the Navy, I decided I wanted to be a wildlife biologist, and uh, I went back and finished my grade 11 in high school. I had quit after grade 10 and went working construction, which was pretty lucrative up there. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I was accepted into Simon Fraser uh, as a charter student uh, without my grade 12. Wow. And as I said, I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. And then I found out that I, you know, four years wasn't enough. I had needed a master's and that would be seven years. 
and uh, I was married then, and uh, my wife was teaching school, supporting me. So then I decided I gave up the biologist thing, and decided I would apply for a conservation officer, and that's what I did. And uh, I was a conservation officer for thirty-two years. Oh wow! See, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. What a lot of people who are listening to this podcast don't realize is that our time together has been very limited. So when I used to guide for Sturgeon on the Fraser, you came out in my boat and you helped me to understand uh, how, to, how to participate in the tagging program with Sturgeon. So at that time, you, you said you were retired? Yes. So you were retired from being a conservation officer. That's correct. So why were you one of the people they would, I mean, who was sending you out to come in these boats with us? The uh, Fraser River Sturgeon Conservation Society, which is a nonprofit organization started by Rick Hansen, the man in motion. Let's just talk a little bit about the program. Has okay. it changed a lot over the years? Not really. Uh, we've tagged approximately 60,000 fish, just over 60,000 fish, and this is our, we're going into our 16th year, and our recap rate is around 58%. And, you know, we'd be able to, we've been able to determine uh, population estimates and also growth rates from so the tagging program. Is this, in, is this in particular to the Fraser River? Oh, yes. No yeah. Columbia Basin fish? No, no. Does the Columbia Basin have a similar tagging program? They have a similar tagging program, and we based our program uh, after theirs. Uh, we're, we started tagging uh, our fish with the same frequency tag and also in the same location. So that if we encountered any of their fish in the Fraser River and it was recaptured, it wasn't one of our numbers, mm -hmm. then we would uh, inquire to uh, Washington State. And uh, we we get uh, one or two every year from Washington State. Our boys will get a recapture. It's not our number, so then we begin to look. And uh, we've also had fish come up all the way from the Kalamath River in California. How were you able to track this? Because if I recall, as people are catching the fish and scanning the fish, they're able to record the chip. Is that how you're Yes, there's no external marking on the fish at all, so you have to scan the fish. It's just a computer chip right. with 10-digit numbers. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about why the sturgeon program even came to be in the first place. I'm going to throw some rapid-fire questions at you. Sure. How fast does a sturgeon grow? They grow very slowly. I mean, their life cycle is, uh, you know, 100 to 150 years. And, you know, they're not even sexually mature until they're about 35. Uh, younger in the males, but older in the females, probably 40 years old before they uh, spawn for the first time. Wow. Okay. Now, is it true that they are a cartilaginous fish? They don't have any bones? That's maybe? correct. Very similar to a uh, shark. So what kind of sturgeon do we have in the Fraser? They're the white, great white sturgeon. When people hear about this caviar and the beluga sturgeon in Russia, it's a completely different Different fish. species, yeah. Is it true that they can live in just mud? Have you heard this before? Well, I know that they're, they have this capacity to shut down their metabolism when they're, when they're stressed and when they're, when they're out of the water. I can remember when I first came here, I had, uh, I had uh, seized two sturgeon, small sturgeon, out of a net. Okay. And they appeared to be dead. And I put them in the water and opened their mouths and, uh, you know, it took me five, seven minutes to keep forcing water through the mouth and through the gills. And they both came around, they both survived and swam away. And, you know, I've heard uh, the stories of when they drained Sumas Lake. Mm -hmm, that's they what I'm stranded, talking about, yeah. They stranded sturgeon and, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, months and even a year after those fish, the way the stories go, are still alive, were still alive. And also, before they were... Uh, 
designated as a game fish. A lot, some of the uh, sturgeon anglers were selling their sturgeon in uh, Chittatown, and uh, they would catch them. They would fish at night if they had a day job, and they would, uh, if they caught a sturgeon, they would just put it on their lawn and throw sacks over it and keep them wet until they got time to uh, run them into uh, Chinatown. That is crazy. So this was before the 80s when they were made yes. illegal to retain. That's right. Okay, is it also true that they used to tie them up by the tail and cut off chunks of meat and the meat would regenerate? Or is that a... No, the meat didn't regenerate, meat? but, uh, you know, I'm sure the sturgeon would stay alive for a, a considerable length of time. And, uh, you know, so they would all be, always be fresh. Right, how awful. Fresh meat, yeah. So in the 80s, they made it so you can no longer retain sturgeon? That's correct. Is that <clears throat> when, well, the program came to be after that? Yes. Who was it that decided it's time for us to start tagging these fish, and where did the money come from? Rick Hansen. He did everything. He's the yeah the man in motion. Is, He's the one. He loved to fish sturgeon, and he had a real uh, you know heavy heart for the way things were with the sturgeon. Uh, the provincial government uh, and the federal government were doing nothing, and then of course we had the die off in the nineties. Can you explain that to me? Yes, we had uh, large fish. You know, spawning-sized fish that were dying, and uh, we didn't know why they were dying. And, you know, there were autopsies done on these fish, and uh, all of these big fish that died uh, were chucked full of uh, whole salmon. They take whole live salmon. Mm -hmm. And the water temperatures that year were uh, uh, warmer than normal, and we could find nothing. There was no toxic uh, chemicals or metals in their systems. And they finally came to the conclusion that it was some kind of a virus brought on through the sockeye and the warm temperatures. Oh, no. Because these big fish were dying, and the smaller fish, medium-sized fish, were healthy. So it had to do with the sockeye. Okay, so at that point... At that point, uh, you know, even the provincial government, believe it or not, became concerned. (laughs) Wow. Hallelujah. Yeah. And that's when uh, Rick you know, started the organization and embarked on the tagging program. Okay, so let me just backtrack a little bit. What was the number one cause of death uh, to sturgeon, or what is the number one cause of death to sturgeon? Well, you you know, we've got a a mortality um, due to uh, First Nation fishery in the gill nets, but that's improving now because they've gone from uh, the set nets to drift fishing, mm-hmm. so these uh, fish that get cut up in the gill nets are not nearly, uh, they're not in as long, and, and the soil rate is much better. Right. What about the sport fishing mortality rate? Is there any? There, there's, there's a slight mortality. We did a study seven years ago that I was involved in. I actually sent, um, did all the, uh, built the cages to hold the fish, etc. and we sampled um, over 200 sport caught sturgeon, and we held them in floating cages for 48 hours. It was in August, and the water temperatures weren't ideal for holding fish. And the mortality rate was 0.5%. Really? Less than 1%, yeah. That's amazing. Because I think fly fishing for steelhead, it's like 3%. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I know I never had a sturgeon die in my boat. And and I guided a sturgeon for three years, and I never... I mean, do they do they... Do you see them dying, or is it one of those things where, just like salmon or steelhead, you release them and they end up passing away days later? Well, you know, the, the mortality rate due to hooking is, is almost non-existent. When you talk 0.5%, mm. 
So if they're handled properly and, uh, and we have handling practices that everybody has to abide by that's involved in the program, uh, it really shouldn't be a problem. And um, we have uh, poaching. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a concern as well. Not so much in the upper river because there's so much activity up here with angling guides and fishermen that it, you know, the opportunity's not there. But down in the lower river, and particularly at night, you know, they're down there fishing off the, the docks and uh, off the log booms. And very hard to enforce because you have to catch them with the fish oh. in their possession. What they do is they catch the fish, they will tie them up underneath the logs and then come daylight, if there's nobody around, then they take them home. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, so there is a mortality uh, due to poaching as well. Oh, that's a shame. Did they ever figure out why it was the larger fish being impacted by the virus with the sockeye? Because they could take whole salmon, whole sockeye salmon. Oh. Smaller fish uh, weren't capable of that. So they had a higher dose of whatever the... Problem, yeah, whatever, whatever the, the virus is. transferred to the uh, from the uh, sockeye to the sturgeon. You know, there were warmer warmer than normal water temperatures involved as well. I remember guiding, and we would tie up entire salmon and toss them out, and they you know hold fast on the bottom. Yeah. And we would we'd catch big fish that way. Yeah. But depending on the time of year, sometimes we would use leeches. Sometimes we would use worms or robe eggs. Yeah. I mean, are they specific, or do they just kind of eat anything that's Dead. Well, the best thing to do is to, is to use whatever is current. I mean, if the sockeye are in the river or if the chum are in the river, use, you know, those fresh baits if you have them, if they're available. Or when during a pink year, use pink roe and, uh, you know, pink uh, parts. Right. Yeah. Now, you remember, you you mentioned before I started rolling here, that you recall me hating stink bait. Yes. And that was because I'd have to go out in the morning with my gas and try to find seagulls and wait till I saw some bloated, rotting salmon gaff it and then basically let it marinate in the sun all day on the bow of my boat. It was disgusting. And I hated it. And <laughs> you mentioned that you're not a huge fan of stink bait either. It's overrated. <laughs> Why do you think it's overrated? I just think it's overrated. Thank God. Okay, good. <laughs> you think they prefer... Maybe I say that because I won't use it. Yeah. Okay, but, so I'm not uh, alone. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So let's talk a little bit about the program. Rather than me explain to people what we would do after we would catch the fish, can you just explain what you would ask us guides to do after we had caught a fish and brought it in close to the boat? Okay, well, what we've got are we have a, a set um, uh, handling practices which everybody has, a, has to abide by. Anybody that's on the program, they're under permit, and these handling practices are part of the permit. Mm-hmm. You have to abide by them. So, uh, a fish under one under one point five meters—that's about four and a half feet—you can bring them on board, put them in a sling with some water in the sling, and then you can work on them in the sling. You know, where you can take your measurements, the length and the girth, and, you know, scan it to see whether it's a recap or not. If it's not a recap, it's a virgin fish, then you apply a tag. Right. Okay. And can you explain the tags? Sure. They're just a a small computer chip, you know, about the diameter of a pencil lead Mm -hmm. and just a few centimeters long. And they have a 10-digit number, which the scanner will pick up when you go over it. And then we were putting it into, we were implanting them behind the gill plate, I recall. Yeah, just back of the gill plate on the left-hand side, just underneath the skin. We try and uh, put them in quite shallow instead of deep, because we're looking at 30 to 50 years down the road. We don't want too much uh, muscle tissue to grow over it. We want it, uh, 
you know, accessible to the scanner. May I ask what a program like this cost? Because it was pretty extensive. Yes, these well, the scanners are almost a thousand dollars each. Wow, or eight hundred and some odd dollars on the average. And the tags, uh, we buy them in bulk, so they're about. Uh, we were paying three dollars a piece for those. So every times I buy sixty thousand, you know, that's a fair chunk of money. Wow. Yeah. How many of us guides had? Uh, scanners. I know that me and all the guys had scanners. Did the rest of the operations have scanners too? Well, we got about 65 people. A lot of them are our professional guides. And then we also have recreational fishermen mm-hmm. that are involved in the tagging program. And we also have the uh, a couple of the uh, test fisheries, the DFO Albion Test Fishery. They tag and monitor for us. Mm-hmm. And also the um, Pacific Salmon Commission Test Fishery also uh, help us out that way. Are there any other species of fish that they have this sort of program with? Not that you can Not think that I'm of. aware of, no. no. me neither. It's just very expensive. Every time we talk about doing yeah. tagging programs, money comes up. Yeah, well, what they've determined, uh, you know, from the, the program they did in Washington State on the Columbia River, uh, they did it for a number of years, and they tagged 40,000 fish, and then they quit after 40,000 because it was so expensive. The government was paying for it, and it was determined that what our volunteers provide on this program, tagging and monitoring, is worth about $1.3 million a year. That's what it would cost the provincial government if they undertook this program and paid people to do what our volunteers are doing. What is the economy of the sturgeon fishery? I mean, people, I don't think people realize just how many anglers come from all around the world to fish for sturgeon. Do you know or have an approximate number? It's a multi-million dollar industry. Specific in, to Canada, not even including. Oh yeah, it's specific Columbia. to the Fraser River and specific to sturgeon. Wow. Yeah. Okay. People come here as well to, uh, you know, to be guided for salmon, but you know our salmon runs and and our salmon seasons are so they fluctuate fluctuate so much that mm-hmm. it's hard to even for the for the angling guides to book people for them because they never know whether they're going to be open or not. Yeah, I remember So primarily that. the guiding industry out on the Fraser River is for sturgeon. And they come from all over the world. It's the place to come. What about the Columbia? They have uh, quite an industry down there too with the sports, you know, the angling guide, sport fishing for uh, sturgeon as well. But is it more for, for from a retention? They sense? do have a kill fishery down there. They're allowed to retain sturgeon within a, a certain uh, size range. Mm-hmm. They feel they have a surplus within a certain size range, so they have a limited fishery on that size range. Okay, and your opinion on that? Well, I'm a little apprehensive because um, some of our fish we know go into the Columbia River. Oh. So some of our fish are undoubtedly uh, being taken by and retained if they're within that size limit. Do you think the Fraser could sustain a, a catch-and-take fishery? I don't think so at this time. Do they have the same sort of healthy economy when it comes to the guiding business? Oh, yeah, I believe they do. I was just going to mention, we were talking about mortality. Mm-hmm. Something we're running into now, which we haven't run into before, the last just the last few years, are predation by uh, sea lions. We know that uh, this has occurred on the uh, Columbia River for a number of years, but we haven't experienced it until the last couple of years. And this past fall, we had uh, a sea lion right up to the mouth of the Veda River, or the Sumas River, and was seen killing three sturgeon in one day. So it is true. Oh, yeah. You bet. 
Do you think that this has always happened and we just didn't know? Uh, no, I think it's new here in the Fraser River. How? It's just the, it's a learned experience for these uh, sea lions and they're growing in population and, uh, you know, we have more sea lions now than we ever had before. Why? Just because they're protected and they don't do any calling, you know, even if they, you know, we think, and a lot of people think that, uh, you know, seal and uh, sea lion predation, you know, can have a devastating effect on some populations. Yeah, that is a very interesting point. But we have, you know, too many people out there that don't want to kill them, you know, even call them, even if we think there's too many of them and, and they're having an adverse effect. And, of course, the politicians, they don't want to do anything to upset, you know, the majority of the people. Because so, they're so cute, it hurts the public. Yeah. It's like clubbing baby puppies. Yeah. <laughs> but I understand. No, that's another thing I should really look into uh, as far as getting someone on to talk about. Because you are not the first person to have mentioned that. We know that seals will also take smaller uh, sturgeon as well. But they take them from underneath. They grab them in the, you know, about the only spot where they're not going to get beat up from the scoot. So they get grab them from the underside on the uh, on the neck part. Can you explain what you mean by that? A lot of people don't realize the armor that sturgeon has. Yeah, they have very sharp uh, sharp scoots uh, along the top and along the sides for protection. Mm-hmm. And uh, the smaller the fish, the sharper the scoots. Most of the sturgeon are bottom dwellers. They're all bottom dwellers, yeah. But they do come up. I mean, I've seen them jump when the water gets yes. warm. Yeah. So the seals or sea lions are just waiting for them to leave the bottom? Is that what's happening? Well, it just depends what kind of water they're in. These seals can dive down and, uh, you know, take. And at times, we were out on the uh, on the big Hatsik hole where they're wintering, where the sturgeon are wintering, and there's some of their, most of them are down 90 feet laying on the bottom. But for whatever reason, they like to come up and they like to jump on the surface. Yeah, do you know why that is? Because they can't, I think. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> That's an, but, the age-old uh, question. Yeah. I think it was my last year of guiding, or the year right after, when the sturgeon surcharge came in. Okay. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. It's, just, it's an extra license if you want to angle for sturgeon. And the provincial government promised us, promised everybody, that this money that derived from this license would be spent on sturgeon. And is it being spent on sturgeon? I, I think most of it is, yeah. But it, you know, it all goes into general coffers, and then it's uh, then it's handed out. We're not seeing much of it. Uh, you know, the Sturgeon Conservation Society. We've got some money from them, but most of it's being spent on studies, on uh, habitat studies, on juvenile studies, uh, acoustic tagging. Okay. I shouldn't be so critical. I think basically it's all going back to sturgeon, but I'm. Maybe a little upset that they're not giving more to the tagging program. Yeah, well, that's We're true. always struggling for funding. Okay. And on that yeah. note, if somebody did want to donate money or, or contribute any money, how would they do that? They would just contact our executive uh, director, Director Sarah Schreier. And, uh, you know, we have we have an Adopt-A-Sturgeon program uh, for, uh, you know, raising funds as well, where if you catch a sturgeon and you adopt that fish... They will keep you apprised every time that fish is is recaptured. They will notify you of the circumstance where it was caught and maybe how how much it had grown in that time, etc. That is so cool. So what does that cost? A hundred dollars. And how long do you get to adopt that sturgeon for? Forever. I'm going to adopt the sturgeon as soon as I leave here today. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh my god. Most of our funding comes from the habitat. Uh, conservation fund. Mm-hmm. This is the uh, fee that we pay on our licenses. 
and we get we get private funding from uh, industry uh, through Rick Hansen. He's forever out there taking VIPs out and getting them interested, and you know they they will donate money as well. Now I see you've got a bunch of notes written down there. Would you like well, to tell me what they are? Oh, I just uh, some things that I, I didn't I didn't want to forget. I think we we talked about you know we've tagged just over sixty thousand fish. Mm-hmm. Thirty thousand of those sixty thousand sturgeon that we tagged have never been recaught. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we're beginning to see it now in the last couple of years. Uh, I started. I monitor all the and proofread all the tag sheets. They come to me before they go to the computer people, so I see them and make sure they're all done correctly. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing a lot of old tag numbers, so I started to uh, to look in the database at these old tag numbers, and we were running into last year and this year hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sturgeon were caught, uh, recaptures that we hadn't seen in 10 to 15 years. So we don't know where they've been. Okay. There's no way they were in the main stem Fraser River uh, with all the traffic out there and all the people that are monitoring. There's no way if they had, you know, stayed in the Fraser River, they wouldn't have been recapped. So they're going someplace. But they do go back to the ocean, right? Sure. Can you somehow gather that data? We've started doing some acoustic tagging. That's expensive. We, yeah. But, you know, it's if you, there's such a big ocean out there. We know that these sturgeon chew up in the estuaries of all the major rivers up and down the coast and over in Port Alberni. They're caught in uh, First Nations nets, and uh, so they're out there. I'm curious to know the biggest sturgeon that has been caught, not necessarily on a line, just the biggest sturgeon that, that's been recorded. I think the record was 1,800 pounds. So that wasn't caught on sports fish. No, uh, that's okay. Yeah, I think it was 1,800 pounds. Do you know how many that feet? That I'm aware of, uh, just on a mission someplace. How many feet is that? I don't know. That's really ridiculous. Know. 1,800 yeah. pounds? That could yeah. eat a person. Oh, yeah. I mean, ugh. The largest, the largest fish that we have in, uh, caught in the ta- and tagged in the tagging in our tagging and monitoring program is over twelve foot. We've had a number of them in the twelve foot range, eleven to twelve and a half feet. And how old is a fish that size? Probably eighty-five, ninety years old. That's unbelievable. Yeah. One of the things I hear people say a lot is that not much, that much is really known about sturgeon, and. There's this footage online of this big ball of sturgeon. Have you seen that? Yes, that's in the uh, that's below the dam on the Columbia. What is happening in that footage? They're just they're wintering there. Uh, we have the same thing here. We have wintering areas like that, uh, like that big Hatsik hole, which is ninety to hundred feet deep. Mm-hmm. The bottom of that is covered with sturgeon. That's where they're wintering. But they do it in a ball with each other, like yeah. Snakes? I don't know what that is. It's um, I've seen videos of it, and uh, they were quite uh, they were quite surprised. I guess they saw something in in you know the people that uh, look after the dam. They saw something. There was something going on, and they thought it was logs. And they sent these divers down, and they found all these sturgeon. But yeah. they they never did find out if it was for warmth or if it was for mating. Or... It wouldn't be for warmth. If it was a little closer to the uh, the spawning season, you would think maybe it was kind of a pre-spawning thing. But, um, you know, for the same reason, we don't know why, being a, a bottom feeder and we're in the Hatsik Hole where there's hundreds and hundreds of sturgeon wintering, 
the robotic feeder, why are they up on the surface and coming out of the water and uh, who knows? Right. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, this is middle of the winter time, so it's got nothing to do with spawning, which takes place in June, July. Okay. So why do, would they need to overwinter in the first place? Do they not feed in the winter time? No, the water temperatures are, are not, you know, they are cold enough. They do very little feeding, and there's virtually nothing there for them to feed on. Okay. You know, they're relying on, in the Fraser River, the Ooligan run that comes in in the spring. Mm -hmm. That tides them over until the salmon runs start coming, and uh, it goes on from there. Okay. There is some, there is some, you know, native species that they can feed on, squawfish and crayfish and, uh, and that type of thing. But What happens when the salmon runs are minimal or poor? Well, they poor suffer. You know, I guess they... Uh, I think what happens is if, the, if there's not a, a, an abundance of feed, some of these females, and they don't spawn every year either. I mean, they may only spawn once every four or five years, and it would just slow down the reproductive system of these big spawning females. That makes sense. Okay. Is there anything that you can think of that I've missed or that you would like to add or anything you'd like to ask me? The study we've been doing is a very credible study. I mean, we've been written up in scientific journals, and there's not another study that compares with it, uh, you know, using volunteer people. And uh, we've also, we had a, a lady from Cambridge University in England mm -hmm. came over and did her PhD on our sturgeon tagging program. Wow. So it's a very credible program. It's been very well done. Species at risk, the federal government wanted to put them on that list. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, this is a few years back, and uh, if they had done that, if they'd gone species at risk, designated as that, there would have been absolutely no angling for sturgeon, not even catch and release. And we argued, and successfully, because we, were, we had already embarked on the tagging program and we were getting all this great, valuable information on sturgeon, so they decided to leave it at a, a, as a species of concern rather than a species at risk. And that's a prime example of why we need people fishing. Yes, exactly. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Tune in next time as I sit down with renowned Marlin guide, Dean Butler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.